Hi, everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience research podcast. Today is November 27th, 2023. It's not our usual podcast day, but we couldn't miss a chance to chat with Erica Korb, who is Assistant Professor of Genetics and Epigenetics and the Epigenetics Institute at uh, University of Pennsylvania, Perelman School of Medicine. Hope I got that okay. Erica works on epigenetics of nervous system function, which means the mechanisms by which changes in expression of our genes can underlie the most fundamental and mysterious of nervous system functions, including long-term memory, neurological disorders, responses to injury, and uh, addiction, and a host of other things. Or at least we think that they may cause those things. And her lab studies the entire chain of causation from the genome to the cell-specific gene expression, synaptic transmission, behavioral measurements, learning, and more. So welcome, Erica. Hello, and thank you for having me. And with us is Alexis Soshnev, our local chromatin and epigenetics expert and increasingly a familiar face on the podcast. Hi, Alexis. Hi, Charlie. And me, I'm Charlie Wilson. So Erica, since the 1960s, I know, uh, most neuroscientists have just assumed that long-lasting changes in our behavior caused by experience, things like long-term memory, drug addiction, psychiatric disorders, must be caused by long-lasting changes in gene expression, with the idea that the kinds of molecular mechanisms we knew about didn't have that kind of longevity. And so uh, it must be that, but we didn't know anything about what those mechanisms would be really. And there was not a lot of really hard evidence that they do that for a long time. But now I would say we have plenty, maybe too much. There are more mechanisms than we can really handle. And uh, uh, some of them center on the structure of chromatin and the accessibility of genes to translational proteins. And I think those are the kinds of mechanisms we'll talk about today, I hope. So could you get us started with that sort of quick uh, summary of the structure of chromatin, the nucleosome, molecular system that controls that structure and can change it to increase or decrease the expression of the gene? Sure. So um, when we think of DNA, we think of this sort of long strand. But in reality, that's not how DNA actually exists inside of our cells. Instead, it's um, packaged in incredibly precise ways um, by a set of proteins called histones. So these proteins um, are some of the most abundant proteins in our cells, and they're some of the smallest. Um, And they essentially work by wrapping up DNA like thread around a spool. Um, And as they do that, they can um, create structures that are um, more or less permissive for transcription. So they can create regions of chromatin, which is the term we use to refer to this complex of DNA and histone proteins um, that are very compact. And those compact regions of chromatin tend to have less um, gene expression because transcription factors can't, for example, as easily get in to turn on genes. There also can be regions of chromatin that are much more open, or we call them accessible, um, meaning that they're accessible to transcription factors and other machinery that's necessary to make new genes into RNA. Um, So in the process of sort of packing up DNA into these structures, the histones have this sort of really unique opportunity um, to dictate what genes are going to get turned on and off or when they're turned on and off or how much they're turned on and so on. 
So these histone proteins um, are really fascinating. They're just sort of, as, as much as we look at them, they just become more and more complex. We kind of never get to the, the bottom of all that they can do. Um, <laughs> Which is great. It means we'll all have jobs for a while, um, but they can be modified. So they, for example, can be modified by a wide range of post-translational modifications. Um, they can be replaced with sort of variant forms, um, and even the DNA itself can be modified. Um, my lab doesn't work on that area so much, but um, these histone proteins um, and all of their different permutations and modifications really provide a um, incredibly complex code that cells can use to regulate gene expression. As, as you referenced, um, neurons use this to create kind of lasting changes in um, synaptic genes um, that can ultimately influence their circuitry and allow them to essentially store information, we think. So uh, is there something special about neurons? Are there special histones that neurons use the most that make, give them their special features? Or, or is this just a feature of every neuron, every cell in the body and the neurons just happen to be a cell and so they do that? So I think both. I think um, these, these histones and their modifications are certainly um, uh, you know, required for every cell um, in, in, our, in our bodies at least um, to um, regulate gene expression. And you see a lot of conservation in different cells. Most cells use a lot of the same mechanisms to turn on and off these genes. But neurons certainly seem to be unique in many ways. Um, and um, the uh, one that my lab happens to study is looking at a set of proteins called histone variants. So histone variants are sort of like a different flavor of histone. So you can think of these histone proteins, um, I like to think of them sort of like an ice cream cone. So you, you can modify them, you can maybe put sprinkles on them or chocolate chips or you know whipped cream, depending on how crazy you feel like being, and that'll change a little bit of the, the experience of eating that ice cream cone. But you could also swap out that ice cream for a different flavor. So if you didn't feel like vanilla, you could swap it out for some strawberry or something, um, and maybe put on different modifications on top of that ice cream. So there's all these sort of different permutations we can, we can use to modify our histones. But that option of using a different flavor, a different variant of histone, which is what we call these proteins, um, is a feature that is um, sort of particularly important for neurons. And that's in part because most neurons, um, for most of our life, are post-mitotic, meaning they don't divide. And most histones only can get made when a cell divides. So for most cells, they can make a whole new batch of histones every cell division. Neurons can't do that, and they're sort of stuck with the histones they started with, um, and that's interesting in part because that means histones are some of the most long-lived cells in our bodies also. They're just basically special in every possible way you can imagine. Um, but in neurons, um, there is this one other option available to them, which is that they can make these variant proteins. And these, these variants or these different flavors or your strawberry ice cream of sorts um, can come in and get made at any time in that neuron's life cycle. So even though the cell is not dividing, it can make these variant proteins. And those variants um, can therefore accumulate in histones to a much higher degree than we see in any other cell in the body, um, or at least any other dividing cell. Um, so that, because of that, these variants and other aspects of chromatin regulation do seem to be particularly important in neurons. So what is that, what are those variants give the neurons histone that they wouldn't have had otherwise? 
Yeah, so these variants can do a lot of different things, and it's still a really wide open area of biology that we and Alexi and many others are exploring actively. Um, they can have their own modifications. So, um, for example, their own toppings that they can get sprinkled on top of their, their sort of ice cream. They can bring in their own um, sort of favorite binding partners that might specifically bind to one of those unique modifications. And um, they can even have different sort of local structural effects on chromatin. So a histone variant we study works in part by um, opening up chromatin and making it um, more accessible to transcription factors and more permissive to transcription. That means it isn't wound as tied around the histone? Exactly, yes. So I would very quickly interject there and question whether it's a feature of the system or almost a bug in the system that creates a worker, like the cell has created a workaround for. Because because neurons don't divide, they have to deal with the fact that during transcription, especially of highly transcribed genes and neurons, structural genes, synaptic genes, um, there's a lot of open chromatin and nucleosomes do get shuffled around quite a bit. And as that happens, you lose histones. And if you keep losing histones, you will have a real problem on your hands because you'll start activating DNA damage responses, all kinds of promiscuous transcription factor activities. And so you have to replace histones, but you're not synthesizing the canonical isoforms. So now you're reliant on these variants, which in other cell types and in other cell lineages are relegated to very, very specific functions, but in neurons, especially at the end of life, and this is work from Ian Mays and um, Wendy Bendersky, when she was uh, in, in the Alice lab, now she's in, uh, at Stanford. Um, she, uh, they, they have basically demonstrated that neurons that start out with very low level of H3.3, which is a replacement histone H3 variant, by the end of life in like 70 year olds and, and on, um, they, the H3.3 makes up absolute majority of total H3 pool, which is unheard of in other cell types. So whether that's on purpose or it's just the consequence of the fact that nothing else is available and so we're using any tool to keep chromatin together as much as possible. Are these variants the only ones that are being synthesized? And that's the only ones that yes. are being synthesized. So it does Correct. seem... It it doesn't seem like quite so much like a bug that there's one of them, one set of histone proteins that just never get made again, and another set that do. They seem to be that like, okay, now you're an adult, you should be yeah. using these histones. Yeah, and I think yeah, I think it's, a, it's it absolutely right. Be, it could be that too. It's just I don't know if we have a way to decipher it because I don't think there is an easy way to reactivate the synthesis of replication-dependent histone genes mm -hmm. in non-replicating cells. But I think you're right. It's absolutely a, a unique challenge that neurons face and that they either, you know, it's hard to say if it's a chicken or an egg, but they, they've come to rely on these variants um, out of necessity and then maybe make use of them because maybe. of that. Yeah. Um, and it's a really sort of nice workaround to having this unusual feature of being in a post-mitotic state for decades. Um, One satisfying answer, for me anyway, would be to know what the variant does that's new, and seeing that, that is a valuable function for the neuron, uh, and of course that's a probably a big a tall order. To well, we think I think we we have a lot of evidence that suggests there are new features and the variant that Ian uh, excuse me that Ian found, and 
that Alexi's referring to, H3.3 does have several unique features that, uh, for example, um, allow it to have a modification that the normal or canonical histone does not have. So it has a whole new modification that it can change. And it, in fact, it's a really dynamic modification that responds to neuronal stimuli. So it's a, you know, gives this neuron this new um, response pathway that wasn't there before. So is this a methylation? Or it's in, a, um, in this case, it's a phosphorylation modification. Yeah. Um, and a very important one for memory and things like that, we think at least. But I'd, I'd actually just sort of ask yeah. you this question, which is that that's true for H3.3, and it's a beautiful example. Um, but, you know, H4, we don't, we don't really know about H4 variants. There's some, that's... but, you know, we have no data to suggest yet that those yeah. variants replace the canonical H4s by I 80, 90%. I have always puzzled about this. So what Eric is talking about here. How many are uh, histones? So are there, there is four core histones for families of core histones. And the core nucleosome particle, the two histones that make up the fundamental part are H3 and H4. And they come together as a tetramer. And then on top of the H3, H4 tetramer, from both sides of this nucleosome puck come H2A, H2B on one side, H2A, H2B on the other side. And H2A okay. and H2B are much, e it's essentially a sandwich, okay. ice cream sandwich. Um, it's <laughs> very easy, well, it's easier to swap out H2A, H2B because they're on the outside. And H3 and H4 are there forever, essentially. They are very, very hard to remodel and replace. Now, the H4 variant story is really funny because basically every histone has many variants, probably a dozen, and there's probably some we still don't know about, because some of them are encoded from pseudogene-like structures, very, very interesting, except H4. H4 has no variants in human genome, as far as I know in mouse genome, as far as I know in fly genome. There is only one H4, and it's only encoded from replication-dependent H4 genes. And how is that even possible? I've always wondered about and I still don't understand that. So the histones they get lost, the well, H4 they, on those is just lost. Is it? But it probably isn't. So so this is what this is I think yeah. speaks to the the concept of okay, is this a necessary feature of neurons? Well apparently it's not because they do fine with H4 sticking around for their entire lifespans. And what really seems to most likely be the case is this protein is very stable and it will stick around for yeah. Decades, which is incredible. You have, a, you have the protein H4 in your neuron that you were probably born with, and we think, yep. um, as far as we know. Yep. So that protein has to sit around for your lifetime, um, and we, we better hope it does, or we probably lose that neuron. So you know, these are incredible proteins because of that. Um, so the protein itself has to be incredible, sta incredibly stable, but the modifications on that protein are really dynamic. So it has this ability to do two things at once. It kind of confers the stability um, to the chromatin structures in our cells. Um, but at the same time, for example, it's acetylated at multiple sites. And many of those sites on H4 um, are highly dynamic. So you stimulate a neuron and um, you actually can add new acetyls onto that H4 or it can get removed. So it allows for this amazing balance um, of 
both you know, st uh, maintaining large-scale chromatin structures inside of a cell while also allowing for dynamic regulation of gene expression at a local level. So dynamic means if I stimulate a neuron, uh, some mechanism, some unknown or unstated mechanism will, uh, will acetylate that, some histones, and that will cause a change in gene expression. But you said it was dynamic, so that means it will go away after a while. It will go away. So that has a certain lifetime, that memory of having the neuron be stimulated. And are there variations in that lifetime? And we'd like to think some things last really a long time. It, depend, it really depends on the modification. Mm -hmm. I would say that when acetylations were discovered, it was pretty quickly discovered that they're fairly dynamic. And then methylations were discovered and initially, it was assumed that methylations are forever. And in fact, when at some point um, somebody in Dave Alice's lab um, discovered the way to cut a histone H3 tail, apparently one modification on H3 is a proteolytic processing of the tail, which carries all the modifications, they got really excited because they thought, ha, we now find, found a way to remove the methylations. And then, of course, uh, John Wettstein and company uh, Yangshi, of course, uh, discovered the uh, demethylase enzymes. And that was a whole other level. And that basically brought down that house of cards where we thought that we had permanent modifications on histones. And of course, a few years later, we discovered an enzyme that can remove them as well. Um, those enzymes are not very good. So this but variant, though, is permanent, right? If you probably not. Yes. Uh, you know, well, I, I think I think we maybe don't know the dynamics of all the different variants, and they're all a bit different, and they accumulate to different degrees. But I actually think there's probably a lot of turnover of the variants as well. So I think it provides the cell another control mechanism. The difference between a modification and a variant is that a variant is obviously a different protein. Essentially, it will carry a different primary structure primary amino acid sequence. And so that, by def, unless you can envision some sort of amino acid editing mechanism, which I don't know about in histones, um, there has to be a way for the variant to stay the same throughout, while the modifications, as far as I know, every single modification that can get written can also get erased. So the variant can get removed, but then something has to come in and substitute for it. And of course, H3.3 and other histone variants are generally quite turnover friendly, so they like to get removed and moved around. Yeah. I don't want to hijack the discussion, so please continue. No, I thought that was... That, that was uh, I, I was just wondering about the, the tail. The modifications happen on the tail. It's, uh, does it matter? I mean, um, what the, is that also the place that's different on the variants, or the variants are different in some more fundamental way? Both. So, of course, with biology, it's never simple. <laughs> the answer is usually both, I think, for most, most of the time. Um, so, the uh, variants have um, some changes depending on the variant on the tail, and some can be internal to the um, actual inside of the nucleosome. 
Um, and we see a really important amino acid change in one of the variants we study that lands really inside the nucleosome and it doesn't change a modification, it changes the ability of nucleosomes and histones to bind up to D bind DNA and compact it. Um, so you can really just have sort of basic structural changes happening because of these variants. And then um, the modifications don't even all have to happen on tails. There's modifications that happen um, on the nucleosome core regions as well. So um, they're a bit atypical and there's not as many of them, but uh, from what we can tell, all these modifications are really important and all associated with their own sort of sets of disorders and syndromes. I think part of it is also because sometimes modifications inside the nucleosome core particle are quite a bit harder to study. Yes. People tend to study what's easy, and so some modifications just get overlooked. Um, not because they're not important necessarily, but because we don't necessarily have the easy tools to look at them. Yeah, and they're harder to get to, yeah. for sure. So the modifications and I guess the variants too alter that expression by determining what other molecules can bind to, and do something to the DNA, like molecules that actually do the, the expression or molecules that modify mm -hmm. that. I mean, are these like protein interaction sites or? Right, so they, uh, there's a lot of different ways they can act. Um, so taking acetylation as an example, um, acetylation can change the charge um, on the histone, which can make it bind less a DNA less tightly. So it can actually just cause a structural change that only has to do with the change in charge. But it also can function as a recruitment mechanism. So one uh, protein I, I studied a lot as a postdoc was a protein called BRD4 that likes to bind to acetylation uh, modifications. So by um, having more acetylation on certain regions of the genome, on certain histones, um, you can recruit a protein like BRD4. And in neurons, it turns out that recruitment process is really important to activate a set of genes that allow a neuron to respond to a stimulus and um, undergo sort of plasticity type mechanisms and um, promotes uh, sort of some learning paradigms and allows for complex things like learning and memory to take place. So you get kind of both things happening at once, structural changes, but also recruitment of really critical proteins that can then dictate changes in transcription um, themselves. So what, what gives it specificity? What, are the, what, are, what is the scope of variance? If I made some change at some place on some histone protein, <laughs> But it's going to happen at that place on lots of histone proteins and lots of places on the genome. So how, if I were designing this, how would I get the specific change I want for, I don't know, some memory, mm -hmm. a memory? So I actually think this is the biggest question in the field right now. And I think you've hit on it really beautifully because we don't know. <laughs> we really don't. We can sometimes point to some mechanisms that give some specificity. Um, and I, I think, you know, you, you could envision some ways it, it might work uh, where maybe there's sort of more open chromatin that allows for more of these histone modifying enzymes to come in and modify that region. There's DNA binding domains within 
regulatory regions that allow for the recruitment of really specific protein complexes and that might help bring in these histone modifying enzymes to change just those genes or the histone modifications at those sites. Um, so we, we can point to some mechanisms, but there is also a lot of places histone modifications can happen. And I think it's really not always clear how you do get specificity out of a modification that could occur in theory anywhere in the entire genome. Um, and I think it's often not as simple as a single modification. I think it's, you know, maybe that modification does happen in a bunch of different places, but what you really need is three of those acetyl marks and a nearby FOS mark and the removal of a different methyl mark. And it's when you get that combination of things um, and all those specific signaling pathways get activated to allow for those six things or four things or whatever it is to happen in parallel that you get a really you know robust change in gene expression. But I think it's actually a really complicated issue and I think we're um, just getting to the point where we can try to answer it now with new exciting techniques. So I, I think it's a great time to be in the field, honestly. I think it's really fun Fun right now to try to answer these hard questions um, and I do think that we don't have a great answer but I'm curious as to what, what you think and if we can answer that I would, soon. I would say there's two things here one is that there are systems to deliver individual histone variants or subtypes to specific regions of the genome I think Dave used to have a slide where he likened the canonical chaperone systems that deliver any histone H3 H4 to USPS, which delivers everywhere, and unique chaperone systems that establish H3.3 deposition at specific regions, for example, to UPS or FedEx, where it's a very targeted delivery to a very specific recipient. So, for example, there is a chaperone. Tell me what this chaperone means. Um, so, it's a protein complex that can take H3.3 and H4 complex and bring that to a specific site in the genome. Ah. And if it's H3.1, for example, it's just not going to bind it because it knows that there's wrong amino acid in the wrong position, that amino acid clashes with the chaperone fold, and it's not going to touch it. But if it's H3.3, then it can grab it and put it, for example, at transcription start site of an active gene. And that chaperone, for example, is called HERA. There's another chaperone complex called DAX-ATRX, and ATRX would be familiar to people who study developmental disorders or cancers. And DAX-ATRX deposits H3.3 specifically into repetitive regions, but not at active promoters and not at active genes and not anywhere else. How it does it, we don't know. Yeah. But we know that there is a specific chaperone. We know that specific chaperone targets it a specific How many of these regions. chaperones are known? The famous ones are probably four for um, H3.3, H3.12, and H4. Um, there's also a complex called FACT, which re-establishes um, histones at the replication fork, which I don't know much about, and I'm not going to comment but on that. But there could be lots more. But there is probably more than that. We know that there are some chaperones specific to linker histones, for example, and we know even less about those. Those are very exciting. But Alexei, I'd point out that despite those specific chaperones for H3.3, which is actually one of the more well-defined histone variants. really well studied. Yes. yes. H3.3 still gets everywhere by old age. In neurons. In, in neurons, neurons. It does. And in neurons, you don't, like... What I'm talking about is a system that's been pioneered in stem cells, for example, mm -hmm. mouse embryonic stem cells, where we have really defined genomic regions where H3.3 is here, but not there. But in neurons, that landscape goes away. Yeah. 
because there is no CAF1 anymore because there's no replication. And so that is part of the specificity conundrum, and we don't know much about that. And then the other part of specificity is, of course, once you have the histone variants or histone PTMs, post-translational modifications established in a certain way, then, of course, the effects are combinatorial. It's never, almost never, we have a protein that reads a single mark and does its effects. Um, in fact, by vast majority of these proteins have multiple domains um, which react to one mark, just like exactly what you said. They will coordinate these modifications and only if three are present and the fourth one is absent, they won't touch, they, they will exert yeah. their function. There was some beautiful work done by Hyunmin No, um, where they, they were studying a reader domain that reads unmodified lysine 4 on the H3. So as long as lysine 4 is unmethylated, DNA methyltransferase can come in and methylate the DNA. Whenever there is a mono-diatrimethylation on that lysine, DNMT cannot come in and cannot do its work because that serves as a flag. This is an active gene. I don't want any DNA methylation here. It's a really fascinating story there. Phew, it's overwhelming. Um, but you were optimistic about the future. I wonder if you'd say a little something, Erica, about the techniques that you see on the horizon that will make this easier. Yes, yeah, so I think when probably both when Alexia and I were sort of starting our postdocs, we were you know really optimistic about this field and sort of saw its potential, but there really weren't necessarily the tools that we needed to really dig deep and answer I think some of these really tough questions. And um, with sort of the you know increasingly complex um, and impressive set of sequencing approaches we now have at our disposal and sort of more and more sensitive mass spec approaches and so on. Um, and also combined with new neuroscience tools, which I think you really can't neglect in that equation where we can really precisely label specific populations of cells and manipulate them in really careful ways or manipulate specific gene loci using CRISPR tools and so on. We finally, I think, can answer some of the really hard questions. Um, we can do it in complex systems like the brain, where there's so many different types of cells and um, trying to figure out what's happening in one of those subpopulations um, can be incredibly challenging unless you can go and find the right cells and you can go use the sequencing techniques to figure out exactly what's happening in some very small number of neurons that you care about. Um, so I think with those new techniques and our ability to kind of merge them across fields. Um, I think it's a really exciting time to be in the field. And I think we're, we're really poised to make some very exciting discoveries as well. Um, so I'm, I'm at least very optimistic for the next um, years I, and decades of this. I would tip my hat to the neuroscience folks because I really feel like neuroscience has been at the leading edge of technique development relative to chromatin biology in general, because a lot of chromatin biology that works with, you know, dividing cells, you never have the problem. You know, you, you can just grow your cells for another two days and you have a liter of cell extract and you can keep doing the same chromatographic purification that you did 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And if you need 20 million cells for chip, it's not a problem. You can grow 20 million cells in one day. Um, but because neuroscientists faced this challenge, I think they rose up to this challenge and they figured out a lot of absolutely astonishing ways to zoom in on a single cell, 
or single population of cells in time and space and really figure out what's going on there with very high precision. Well, neuroscience has a lot to gain from this. This is a future for us. So thank you very much for joining us, Erica and Alexi. Thank you for having us. This thank you been, for having us. Yeah. Ah, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.